don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the Weekrook Podcast. I am your host, Hansa Bergwall, and today we have Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter on the show. She is the founder of the End Well Project. These are basically medical professionals and activists who are working to reform how we do end-of-life care in America. Uh, really important work. If you've listened to the show for a while, you know just how important it is. And Shoshana is also behind some of the documentaries about dying and end-of-life on Netflix that uh, perhaps you're catching up on now that so many of us are sheltering at home uh, during a global pandemic. So if you're interested in questions about death and dying and what people are doing to make it better, uh, this, is an, um, this is an amazing person to talk to and I'm really excited to have her on the show. Uh, once again, this was recorded in February. Uh, I think we talk a little bit about the pandemic because it was starting to come, but it wasn't like uh, it is now. So just know that uh, that's why we're not talking about it primarily. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So I've been excited to speak with you for a number of reasons. You are a physician, of course, and it's always great to have people who are there on the front lines of death, disease, those things. And also, um, you are the founder of EndWell, uh, which is an important organization doing work in uh, end-of-life care. Do you want to start by telling us a little bit about EndWell, what it is, and why you started it? Yeah, so EndWell is a nonprofit, both annual convening and a, and a media platform that brings together community, uh, so thought leaders and, and others in design, in technology, in health, in policy, in media, education, the arts, patient advocacy, to really change the way that we think about the end-of-life experience so that we don't see it just as a medical issue that needs to be solved, but as an essential part of the human experience that, that truly deserves our attention and our care. And I started EndWell back in 2017 because as a physician, I witnessed so many people suffering in their, in their final moments of life. And in my experience, this was often in the intensive care unit where the sickest people end up. And these were often really frail and, and elderly people who were spending their final days, weeks, months, hooked up to tubes and machines and hidden away from their loved ones and often in pain. And I realized that they didn't have a say in what was going on. We weren't, number one, stopping to have conversations with, with them or their loved ones about what was happening, what tomorrow might look like, what next week might look like, if there was a next week, likely. And I realized that it was the default thing in this country that happens, that no matter how old you are, no matter how sick you are, and even if it won't help you, possibly, you're going to get invest in, invasive, uh, aggressive treatment. And it didn't sit well with me because, you know, I feel like we should be focusing on tailoring our medical care based on what people's goals and values are, especially at the end of life, not just placing uh, a default sort of protocol on, on everybody just because we can. And frankly, just because we're paid to do that. So I, I wanted to create a forum where the consumers of healthcare, meaning patients and caregivers and loved ones, 
could you know, really get educated and, and feel empowered to ask questions and convey what they want uh, around, around serious illness and, of course, around the end of life. And I didn't see that happening. And I realized it was going to take a cultural shift to get us there in a major way. And so Endwell started really as an experiment to invite everyone to the table, no matter what professional background you come from, no matter what you know, race or ethnicity, uh, sexual orientation, demographic, you know, anything uh, that, that everybody's invited and everybody has something to share because we all will experience these issues. It's part of being a human being. And you know, we weren't sure if anyone would show up that first year. And uh, we had 400 people come from all across the country and, and some folks internationally. And we sold out like three months in advance. And what, what year was this? First this one? was 2017. Oh, wow. Yeah. So wow. since then, we've, we've continued to do it and, and, and grown it. And it's really become a movement that so many people who've been doing this work for a long, long, long time are a part of, as well as new voices from the worlds of design and tech and uh and venture capital and and obviously patients and caregivers are, are are very invested in 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 talking about these issues and transforming how all of us you know experience uh the end of life so right you weren't the only person to notice that uh <laughs> how we die at least in america uh, institutionally is um insane and cruel to a lot of people and um uh, that's definitely been a theme on this podcast and I'm curious, what have been the surprising or big developments of bringing so many people together who care about this issue and want to make change? Well, I think maybe not surprising, but really wonderful and encouraging is that everybody has a story to share. So whether you are an academic researcher from Ohio who's doing design research around user experience around the healthcare system and end of life, or you're Tim McGraw, the famous country singer who was a caregiver for his, who was for his father who had a terminal illness and has since been a caregiver for other people in his family and then joined the board of a palliative care tech platform. You know, I, I, this is truly something that impacts everybody at various stages throughout life. And so I think this is a, a very uniting conversation, which I think is, is beautiful and, and maybe somewhat surprising in, in times where it seems like everything uh, that that we that we think about or talk about or see on the news is is dividing us. And so, uh, last year's theme actually for Endwell was bridging divides for for that reason. Because what you know, why why shouldn't talking about illness and the end of life be something that that brings people together? Yeah. So, what is the what is it like to attend one of these conferences? Let's say I was a doctor, academic researcher, country singer, what have you, and I showed up. What, what would I find? Because I think, you know, your average person would expect uh, a death conference to be a bit of a downer. But what is it actually like to be there? I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> Great question. Yeah. So uh, the past couple of years, we've had around 600 people uh, show up to San Francisco in a state of the art uh, venue where we sit, you know, and and uh, it's a TED style conference. And, and I say that just because most people know what TED is, but uh, so, so most presenters on stage talk for somewhere around 12 to 15 minutes. It's a narrative style, meaning it's not an academic you know, talk. It's, it's much more conversational and, and driven by their personal story. And it's a very interdisciplinary group of people on stage. So like I said, you, know, you might see a healthcare professional, a nurse, or maybe a caregiver on stage or somebody from the tech world or even the CEO of a major insurance company sharing their own personal story about serious illness, 
about caregiving, about the end of life, about grief and loss, about leaving a legacy, about burial. We've had really interesting talks about people sort of uh, disrupting the, the funeral and burial industry. And you have an, a very engaged group of people who are spending a good 10 hours with one another and, uh, you know, similar to probably other, other conferences, but, you know, it's, it's a very uh, heart-centered day where people are, are sharing a lot of vulnerable um, things. And, and we see kind of this magic happen in the room where perfect strangers kind of look at each other and, and recognize that, you know, they, that they have shared common uh, experiences and, and connect with one another. And um, that was actually something somewhat surprising to me. It was not, you know, as a, as a physician and a scientist, I, I didn't put together a conference so people could sort of deeply connect on a human level. But that was something that was really wonderful and beautiful that's come out of, of Endwell. And I, I've been told that, you know, people met have in the last three years coming to Endwell met folks they never uh, thought they would get to meet um, and have uh, met their co-founders of their startups that they've you know, started uh, around um, a tech platform, for example, around end of life. They've met you know, lifelong friends that you know, they, they would have never encountered for whatever reason. I think that's the beauty of having such an interdisciplinary group of, of people in the audience and, and speakers as well. Yeah, that sounds really inspiring. It sounds like I should probably go to this event. Um, and uh, I love the format of those those talks and the narrative style because, you know, these sort of things are meant to inspire and get us moving and get us changing. And um, it occurs to me, um, you know, people always think that, you know, crossing that first hesitancy of talking about death is going to be so scary or a downer, but actually... Um, it's a place of great connection, uh, and you know everyone has to go through this. So it's it's fun to hear that uh, there's so much movement in this area because there is so much need. Exactly, and and yeah, I think that's a great point that some people, and I'm sure, walk in the door feeling really nervous and and talking about this stuff is very challenging, no matter if you're a professional at it or it's your first time. So absolutely, just recognizing that that everybody sort of feels a little bit of you know, hesitancy around it. But I do feel like people spend the day there and it's it's very inspiring. It's intense and might be emotional, but I think, you know, you leave the day being like, wow, this is incredible and there's a lot of work to be done and how can I be involved, which I love. It's, it's such a strange kind of almost like a stigma, though not in the same usual way of like, you know, people don't bat an eyelash about people spending a ridiculous amount of time about like, you know, early infant care, childhood care to give people the best, you know, start of life. Um, and yet giving people a good end, it sounds kind of radical to a lot of people. Why do you think that is? Ooh, this is a topic I love. Um, yeah. And I, I completely agree. I think that, well, I, I always look back to history and we know that, uh, you know, about a hundred years ago, say, people died in their homes. We didn't have modern medicine, modern technology and science that we do now. And uh, people often spent their final moments you know, in, in, their, in their parlor of their home, surrounded by family members and other, other people. And death was just a part of life. It was expected, it was planned for, we had ritual around it. We knew, we knew, what, we knew what to do with a body once someone died. 
Um, and you know, once, once science and, and medicine got more advanced, which I'm, I'm actually very glad that that, that happened yeah, uh, for many thing, reasons because life expectancy <laughs> is extended. We save lives every day, which is wonderful. Um, but it, you know, death, death became much more medicalized because people, when, when they became ill, you know, were institutionalized. Um, and now more than ever, because we're so advanced in our technology around, um, in, in medicine, people are living much, much longer with lots and lots of chronic illness. And so that's both good, but there's also many challenges around it because we're not talking about quality of life. And so it's, it's just seen as a, as a quantity of life issue uh, often within the medical realm. And is um, that the specific problem with a medicalized death is uh, quantity over quality? That's, that's what you see as the issues that the approach that science has toward death doesn't look at any of the spiritual heart, you know, um, relationship aspects of what's happening. I think that's a big problem. I think coupled with that doctors and other and healthcare systems see death as a failure to be avoided at all cost. We're not taught as uh, medical students how to communicate effectively with, with patients to talk about the hard stuff like, you know, here's your prognosis. Uh, what, what, if time were short, how would you want to be spending your final days, weeks, or months? What matters most to you in your life as a human being? Uh, we, we, it's just not part of the curriculum, um, except in a few places. I mean, that's slowly changing. But because I think what it gets down to is that our medical system is paid to do things to people, meaning anything procedural, whether it's giving chemotherapy through an IV, whether it's doing some kind of surgery or procedure, those are the things that are incentivized within our healthcare system. If I sit down and I talk to you and your family for three hours about those other things, um, they could just as much, I believe, change your life and the trajectory of your care as much as a surgery would. Um, I, you know, we're not compensated to do those things. And so I not, I'm not saying that doctors are thinking about that, but it definitely pervades the culture of medical education and the culture of caring for patients that it's not valued. Um, and so that's, that's a huge problem. So, so coupled with the fact that I think societally we see death as a failure and it's something that people don't see as a part of life. Um, it, it's landed us in this very difficult place where it's a taboo topic and people aren't reflecting on their own mortality and they're not talking with their loved ones about things like advanced care planning, um, even early on in life when, when we really should be. Yeah. I've, well, you raised a number of issues I want to talk about here, so I'm going to approach them one at a time. Uh, as a doctor, I'm really interested to ask you about the prognosis question, Ask actually, because it seems to be one that a lot of doctors wonder about, as well as patients. Um, so as a doctor, like, let's say, do you usually tell the patient their prognosis first or uh, their family members? Because I often hear a lot of stories about um, you know, the doctor tells the adult child or the spouse first, uh, and they say something like, don't tell them that, you know, if it's, if it's a fatal prognosis, um, how do you, how do you approach who to tell? Mm. Yeah. I, you know, I, for me, I actually maybe take a slightly different approach. And I first 
you know, if, if I'm meeting a patient for the first time or if it's somebody that I've known for a while and there is a serious illness or life-limiting prognosis on the table, I first start by saying to somebody, you know, what's your understanding of your illness? So I, I put the ball in their court and, and depending, of course, on the situation, they may know, you know, what's going on or, they, or this may be a brand new diagnosis and they're like, I have, you know, I, I have no idea. What do, what do you mean? Um, and so I think, I think first starting there um, is a, is, can be really helpful because then you have a place to, to go from if somebody, is, you know, does in fact know, know what's happening or have a sense of it. And then, you know, I think asking the question of, you know, how much do you want to know right now about what's going on can be really helpful. And so to me, it's, it's less about dropping a bomb of, of bad news and who to, who to drop that bomb on, right? It's, and it's more about building rapport and figuring out the right way to communicate with that particular person and their family. Because we know that there are cultural differences in terms of how people like to talk about these things. Um, there's probably generational differences, you know, depending on the age of the person. So I, I do think it, it behooves us as, as clinicians to, to be thinking in those terms and, and then, of course, respecting wishes if, if patients don't, don't want to know or they want their family member to be the one that, you know, is a decision maker or something like that. So I think it's really important. I would say in general, I, I always err on the side of, of telling the patient if they want to know what's going on. And then we go from there in terms of who else should be involved. And I also think just, you know, as an aside, it's, it's very important when we're breaking bad news uh, that, that patients, you know, have a loved one, a caregiver, a family member there with them for support. Um, just a second set of ears to kind of hear the information and process it as well. Yeah. I have a follow-up question about that. And that uh, on the one hand, I think it, it sounds really good and right to sort of feel someone out and respect, you know, someone's wishes about how much they want to know Um and at the same time, and you know, in the palliative care community, people talk a lot about making, you know, an informed decision that's right for their quality of life. Like, you know, perhaps if someone definitely has only a one percent chance of, you know, living more than a couple months, um, maybe they don't want that last chemo because it'll really hurt, and they could, you know, enjoy time with their family with a little less pain instead. So, isn't there? Um, isn't the prognosis often vital information to even having those kinds of conversations with um, uh, with the people who uh, need the care? Oh, absolutely. I, I am a huge proponent of, of open, honest communication about prognosis. I think unless somebody specifically says to me, I do not want to know, um, in which case, of course, I will honor those wishes. I think that's, that's less typical. You know, I think when most people you know, want, want to have at some point, maybe not at the moment they're diagnosed, but at some point a conversation about what the future may hold so that they can spend their time, if it is, you know, a limited amount of time in a, in a way that is in line with their goals and values. And, and of course, honors the life that they've lived. Those are the things I want for them. Um, and, and that's, you know, what I think really good, you know, open communication can bring. And so, you know, part of the work that we're doing also is making sure that more clinicians have training and how to talk to patients. It should be seen as a, as a procedure, just like cutting someone open. You know, when you're a surgeon, you spend many years training in the operating room to do those kinds of things, like take out a gallbladder, for example. We should be spending many, many, many months training clinicians in how to have these kinds of conversations because they make such a huge difference for everybody. Yeah. And 
I have some more questions because I think you're the first doctor I've spoken to who does critical care, correct? That's the part of no, the I hospital don't, that you have I don't do in. critical care. Um, oh, well, occasionally I take care of, you know, patients in the ICU, but I'm, I'm more of a general internist. So I've, I've practiced hospital medicine over the years, okay. meaning I, I take care of folks who are in the hospital. So it definitely overlaps with ICU care, but I'm more of a generalist. And then I also okay. do primary care these days, too. So you're, you're familiar in the ICU. Sure. You and in those areas. Um because, uh, you know, one thing that you raised is um, when you talk about how procedures are valued, that there's this financial incentive toward more care, even if it's not right for the patient, um, and not valuing the quality of life things, um, the conversations, those kinds of things. It, it basically brings up, you know, um, perhaps an unconscious or unintended, but a, a corruption issue that, that, you know, we can't always trust our doctors to have our best interests at heart. And that's a really scary idea to someone who might be going into the ICU. Um, what, how, how, how do you recommend, like how much should we be concerned if we find ourselves there for ourselves or our family members about um, whether we can trust our doctor's um, advice? Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting point. I, you know, I didn't I didn't mean to sound like you know all physicians are thinking about money all the time. In fact, and I, I, would and say I don't think you, you said yeah. that, but yeah. you did raise the specter that For I think sure. I think is really fearful. Yeah, so I, there are absolutely perverse incentives at play within the system. I think it is a hundred percent true that you know we value doing more, uh, saving lives at all costs. Um, no matter the the impact on quality of life, and I think that that is because, again, you know, we're we how we're reimbursed, you know, is not maybe not directly to a physician, but from the health system perspective, we're reimbursed to do things to people. So I think that you know, I think knowing that's really important that for for patients and families, uh, that by default, you know, this the scenario is that you'll get uh, in this invasive, aggressive care unless you opt out and opt out pretty loudly, meaning that you have uh, somebody there at your side who can speak for you if you know, you're unable to speak for yourself or that you are well equipped with sort of the knowledge that this is the status quo and that you want something different and conveying that is really important because you're, you're unlikely to get a clinician who's gonna stop the, the train and say, hey, let's have a conversation for 30 minutes about you know, your goals and values. It's often, we just don't often have the luxury of that, unfortunately, even if we want it. And so I do think that, you know, the more that we can empower the consumers of healthcare with this information, the more that they, that they hopefully will feel like they can, you know, stop and ask questions and say, hey, this is my mom. Uh, here's who she is as a human being. And here's what she told me that she would want in this scenario, or this is what, what she values in her life. You know, how can you best get me that if time is short for her? So I think those are the kinds of conversations that should be happening in the clinical setting. But I think they're also the conversations that, that we have to be having uh, with our families in, in times of, of low stress, where we can just talk about those things and have it be an open conversation that, um, that isn't so taboo. Yeah, I've got... Some questions about that too but before we leave this topic it really does sound like you know as a, as a patient let's say uh who finds himself in the icu it's it's really you know a scary prospect at the moment you need um either to be you know educated um and suspicious yourself or have someone um who can play that role for you if you're incapacitated 
I think that's uh, right. And I, I do think physicians, you know, for the most part have their best, you know, the, the patient's best interest at heart. They may just not, you know, have the skills themselves to, to broach these conversations and be thinking about this. So um, I think it, it's very challenging for everybody involved. And I, one of the reasons that, you know, I got involved with the, the film Extremis was, which is specifically about end of life decision-making in the intensive care unit was for this very reason that most people, right? Unless you've, you've been sick yourself or, you know, have, are in healthcare, don't know what it's really like. And it's, it's important. Hello everyone. We thought we'd take a quick little break, just you, me, and Hansa. And uh, thank you, first of all, for listening to the We Croak podcast. We really appreciate it. And we also wanted to encourage you, if you haven't already, to check out our Patreon page. You know, we have some pretty neat um, subscriber benefits, and it really helps Hansa and I uh, put this show out there and make it all it can be. And you could join one of almost 175 people that are currently uh we croak Patreons. Yeah, thank you to all our Patreon hosts. You are absolutely the best if you support. And some other ways that you can support what we're doing is uh, if you are on iOS, you can join Leap have to, for the biggest database of quotes, so less repeats, more awesome quotes, as well as weekly challenges and some more stuff we are bringing out coming soon, hopefully, to Android, uh, as well as sharing about the podcast and the app to everyone that you know. And now, back to the episode. Let's talk about Extremis and Endgame. Endgame is on Netflix, and it is Extremis as well? Yes, they both yes. are. So they're both about end of life, and I was watching some of Endgame earlier, and I know that you were a part of that project. And right at the beginning, there was this really intense bedside conversation where a mother and a father were sitting next to their beloved adult child who uh, was incapacitated really mentally. Um, I forget what the illness was. And the doctors were explaining the treatment options, you know, the risks, the pain level, and everything else. Um, and um, the mother thought that her daughter would not want this treatment because of the pain and because of the low probability of success and the low quality of, like, her, her mind was gone. And the father thought that she would want it uh, because they had never talked to their daughter about it. Yeah, I think you're actually, I think that's actually her, it was her husband. It was the husband and the mother. If we're oh, talking okay. about Endgame, yeah, yeah, um, that, that that's it. But that's exactly right. So how how typical is that in emergency rooms and sort of um, cancer wards in the in the country? Is that is that something that happens a lot, or is it you know drama for <laughs> for Netflix? No, oh my goodness, that was totally. It's a documentary, so it was very very true story, not scripted, of course. And um, it that happens all the time, unfortunately. That, that A, people have not had conversations with, with their loved ones about these issues early or at all, right? And then two, that the family doesn't, doesn't agree about what the person in the bed would have wanted and they're not able to speak for themselves. It's, it's really tricky and, and causes you know, so much pain for family members to have to, in those moments, try to decide and make a good decision on behalf of, of their loved one who's ill. It's, it's one of those things that it's heartbreaking for us, you know, as clinicians, when we're talking with patients or w with families about these things, when, when there is, there's no agreement and it causes so much, um, 
strife um, among family members. And so, uh, you know, if, if, if I always say like, if you don't want to have a conversation for yourself, have it for the people that you love, it's a gift to them. So they, they, they know where you're at with this, um, to be talking about these things. If, if it ever came up, um, I just think it's, it's so important. It was so intense. I mean, I was thinking about it when watching this because it's so beautifully filmed and, you know, people look beautiful on their deathbeds or in these, in these cares. And like, this is very touching moments and people are talking and almost NPR voice because, you know, these are good doctors that you follow around clearly who have great bedside manner. And, you know, we're so used to seeing hospital drama on like ER or something like that, where, you know, it's always like the hero and what, life-saving things can we do and it, but this was a very different kind of human moment and where you know you listen to I guess it was the husband to talk about what he thinks his wife would have wanted as her eyes are sort of she's there she's alive her eyes are sort of rolling around in her head she's mm-hmm. um and then the mother talks about what she thinks her daughter would want having known her her whole life and they're at, totally at odds and you just sit back and go well, what do you do here? Yeah. This is an impossible situation. Yeah. Well, um, how, what's the right way to go? Well, I think what, what they depicted really nicely in the film, and I think, you know, to me, the real heroes in medicine are these palliative care clinicians. So they're the ones that get called in in these scenarios where there isn't a clear path forward, where these conversations are so challenging. Um, they're They're full of sort of family dynamics issues, um, so much pain uh, around a serious illness of, of a loved one. And they are experts in navigating these kinds of conversations. So, and, and their, 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 their goal is to reduce suffering for that person in the bed and for their family and the other loved ones uh, around a serious illness. And so if I, I just always wanna put in a plug for, for the field of palliative care and it's, it's really, an incredible team-based approach to medical care that usually consists of a doctor, a nurse, a social worker, a chaplain, a pharmacist sometimes, who all come together and work as a team to reduce suffering for people that are facing a life-limiting illness. And they don't just focus on physical pain, they focus on other things like psychosocial distress, spiritual or existential suffering, um, even financial issues around around illness that families face. So it's really wrapping around people and their families, and it can be used at any time during the course of illness, even alongside curative treatment. So it's very important that people know that, you know, you often have to be referred to palliative care to get it. So ask for it um, if if it's not readily available. But ideally, it's used for years um, alongside other treatments and the data is actually quite amazing in that people who get referred to palliative care early tend to live longer and much better. They have a much better quality of life, which is maybe a not intuitive, but it's it's uh, the living longer part at least. But it's wonderful. Yeah, a very important plug for palliative care. I, I'm wondering, are there other moments from either extremis or um, endgame that you really feel like illuminate some of the the problems or the potentials you see in healthcare, end of life healthcare today. Oh goodness, so many moments. I think I think because they're both short documentaries, so in the twenty to forty minute range, it's it's pretty concentrated and intense in terms of 
the, the, the scenes essentially and the storylines. There's so many moments I can't even, you know, it's hard to even boil it down. Um, I think, you know, what, what really stands out for me in Endgame is um, you know, Steve Pantelat, who's a palliative care physician at UCSF, is just so skilled at having conversations with, with families about palliative care and what it is and, um, and, and sort of these conversations about goals of care. I think it's really wonderful for anybody to watch, but especially you know other medical um, providers, just to get a sense of you know how 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 should we be talking about these things? Um, he's just so so incredibly skilled. And then similarly, B.J. Miller, who's in Endgame, um, is just you know a, a, a master with with words and um, and really talks about the fact that death is a part of life, and that maybe we don't have to accept it fully, but have some relationship with our own mortality. I think that's just so beautiful and, and stands out to me in that in that particular film as being really important. Yeah, it's funny how you bring up how they talk about end of life care and values because you know, having a certain philosophical approach, it's not something we usually think of going to our doctors for. And yet in this case it is the difference. You know, palliative care doctors have all the same tools at their disposal, medicines, medications, surgeries at any other healthcare provider would have, they just have a different philosophical approach that completely changes the outcome of care. Or, or the, the, it, it can, yeah, it definitely the style can change of care. the outcome. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, palliative care was born out of a reaction to sort of this, this over-medicalization of, of illness and the end of life. And so it's interesting to think about it in that context. It's really only been a, been a field uh, a specialty boarded for the last 10 or 12 years. So it's it's pretty new as a philosophy, except that it's not because we've been thinking holistically about care forever. It's just the pendulum has swung towards, you know, do do everything, do more, keep people alive at all costs when really for many people, that's not what they want, but we're not stopping to ask them. So I, I think that's the beauty uh, in 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 palliative care. And again, it's about so much more than end of life. It's really, truly, you know, for anybody facing serious illness, even if it's years and years and years upstream, the support of palliative care can make all the difference. And um, it's, it's really, you know, for me as, as a non, you know, palliative medicine clinician, getting to, get, getting to witness the, the power of, of these conversations just, you know, b- blows you away. I mean, it's just incredible. And, and the reason why I've become such an advocate for this, um, even from the outside, that, you know, I want, I want everybody to have access to this. I am also curious how Endgame and Extremis, uh, the documentaries, came about, because it was really special to see such high production value and great storytelling on you know streaming on netflix how did how did how did these films happen and and um yeah just give us an inside look for a second yeah well uh for for extremis you know the jessica zitter who's an icu dac and and palliative medicine physician in oakland california just across the bay from where i live um basically you know spent about six months uh with with um with the director uh dan kraus who popped in one day to kind of take a look and see if the intensive care unit was a place that, that made sense to shoot a film. Um, and of course they got, had to get buy-in from the hospital and, and all of, and with patients, of course, consent and all that. Um, and so 
it, it basically, you know, came out of her many, many years of, of work in the ICU dealing with these really intense moments of, of, uh, of life and death where she felt like we needed to shine a light in those dark places. And I got involved very late in the, very, very late in the process of that film. They'd spent, you know, six months filming already and, and Dan had a, had a rough cut of the film, but wasn't sure what he was going to do with it. And Jessica, who's a friend, said, hey, you know, you should take a look at this. You're, you're interested in culture change and, and, and more patient uh, empowerment around end of life. Uh, have a look. And so I did. And I was t- just completely blown away by this five minutes of, of film, even though it's something that I've been doing day in and day out. I was emotional myself just watching it. And so I knew he captured something really powerful. And I called him up and I said, Dan, gosh, you know, what's the plan for this film? I'd love to help if I can. And he said, thank you. You know, we, we don't have the money to finish it. And uh, so we'll put it on the shelf for now. And I said, no, this film has to be made. I will do whatever I can to support it. So that's how that happened was, you know, I kind of jumped in at the very end around the funding uh, piece of, the, of that film. And, and uh, you know, I, I had never done anything like that before. And um, wasn't sure. I thought maybe if the film was seen by a few hundred people, that would be successful. This was before Netflix and other streaming services started buying short documentaries. We just so happened to be the first short doc Netflix ever bought. And then when we premiered at Tribeca Film Festival and then won Tribeca Film Festival, I was like, oh, I guess this is a really great film and, and maybe more people are going to get to see it. And then it was nominated for an Academy Award that year, which you know, still to this day, I cannot believe that happened. Um, and really now is being used as a teaching tool for everybody, frankly, but but especially for, for medical students and and others in, in healthcare about sort of, you know, the, these critical moments in time when we need to be stopping and saying, you know, hey, let's let's talk to these these families about, uh, you know, what, what's going on here so that they're not left in the dark. Uh, so that's Extremis and it's, you know, it's been out for, for, for several years and I see it come up on my Netflix uh, algorithm sometimes too. And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> it still blows my mind that, you know, it's, it's out there for people to see. And then that's similarly an, with Endgame. An amazing story before we get to Endgame, because it strikes me, you know, you, you really wanted me to make sure I introduced you as like an activist who's trying to change things here and has this nonprofit. And it's so important to have people in a movement trying to make these things happen because, you know, now when people see something on Netflix, it's been nominated for an Academy Award. Sometimes we don't pause to think of like, how did that happen? And it sounds like one of the reasons it happened is one, of course, the passion of the director and the people making it, but also because, you know, there were people there willing to put up the funding and the the passion and like make it make it happen you know that there were people who cared about this issue enough to to step up and say no this has to be made and that otherwise these things just sort of get buried under you know the hecticness of life yeah that's true thank you yeah it was a dream to be to get to be a part of even a small part of that team and and similarly with endgame which was a totally different team you know, was, was involved with that, you know, further upstream. Uh, so f- a few years uh, before it was, was, was completed, but that was a many year project um, with, with a different set of directors and producers. And, you know, they wanted to tell the story of hospice and, and palliative care and, and look at Zen Hospice Project and the work of BJ Miller and then the, the clinicians at UCSF, um, which, which you talked about earlier. And, 
And, you know, Netflix obviously bought, bought that one as well. And then that was nominated for an Academy Award um, just last year. And so I think that the, the power of media, you know, is, is, should not be underestimated. I think that's part of the reason what, you know, we do, what we do with, with Endwell is, is pushing out lots of content because people are spending hours and hours a day watching television through their phones, through their computers, through their tablets. Um, and I just think the, the more, uh, the more we can get this message out there, um, so that people can just start thinking about this for themselves and hopefully talking about it with the people that they love, we'll all be in a better place, uh, and hopefully have a, a better end of life experience. Yeah. Wow. Two Academy Award nominations, but you know, why it doesn't really surprise me is, you know, when you are able to broach the subject of death and dying. You know, there's such a taboo that people don't get a lot of chances to talk about it and share their stories. And yet, these are often some of the most, sure, difficult, but also meaningful and significant moments of people's lives. And there are such rich stories there that people can relate to and um, that people want to hear. I think that's right. And when, we, when we've shown these films around the country, which we did with Endgame last year and, and right when it came out, you know, we had, we've screened it in front of thousands of people. I mean, so many people come out and to watch and they, they really love getting to share their personal stories. Um, that was something somewhat unexpected that, you know, in our Q and A's, we thought people would ask questions about the film. They just really wanted to share, even with perfect strangers about the fact that they'd been a caregiver for, you know, an, an ailing parent, or they had recently experienced a loss and just sort of the beauty in that, that real sort of vulnerable human experience um, is just uh, where we were thrilled to get to, you know, be a place where people could find community around that topic. Yeah, I mean, I've been in those rooms where the relief people like is it's almost palpable in the room when people feel like they finally have permission to talk about some of the most meaningful and significant and difficult often moments of their lives when they so rarely feel like they have that permission. Yep, exactly. Hopefully we can be opening the door to more of, the, more of these conversations. For I'm, sure. I'm really curious. I mean, clearly you've created two films that anyone can stream on Netflix, Endgame and Extremis. In terms of, you know, your the mission uh, or one of your missions of changing the culture of how we think about and talk about and do death in America, what's what's next? What are, what are you working on next? Well, we're hard at work uh, planning Endwell 2020, which uh, is going to happen in December uh, in Los Angeles. So we've, 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 we're coming to LA this year, um, trying out a new city. And um, yeah, we're thinking about how, you know, how we can continue to, to grow this movement. Um, and, uh, and no, no films at the moment, um, but, you know, constantly looking at, at new opportunities to, to get people thinking about this topic and, and then supporting my colleagues who are also doing incredible work uh, around the country and, and beyond to kind of transform this uh, this experience. Cool, cool. So uh, plug zone time. If people are interested in the conference or just want to get more involved in um, Endwell's mission, where should where should they go? Our website, endwellproject.org. We have all of our videos from past speakers, and then we're on every social media channel except for TikTok. I think we haven't yet jumped on that train, but um, we're at Facebook and Endwell Project. Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, gosh, YouTube, you name it, we're there. So we, we would love to uh, connect with people. Yeah, you should definitely get on TikTok, though, those dances. You know, I think you'd be <laughs> <laughs> great at them. Just get a bunch of uh, 
palliative care uh, doctors doing the renegade dance, and I think it would be a big hit. Oh my gosh, I don't even know what that is, but it sounds amazing. <laughs> if you go on TikTok, you'll know. Uh, and uh, all the talks are on there. Uh, do you have like a, a top three recommendations of talks everyone must go look at right now just because they're so inspiring or interesting or um, counterintuitively brilliant? Oh my goodness. So one of my favorite talks, I mean, they were all so good, I have to say, and I know all these speakers personally pretty well. So I, I hate to play favorites, but Esther Perel's talk last year just completely blew my mind. She talked about, you know, a topic I know not that much about relationships and intimacy around end of life and serious illness. It was just, my jaw was on the floor. Um, so her, her talk from last year, for sure. And then I would also say my, my dear friend, Suni Dapuri, who's a palliative care physician at USC, talked about the importance of language and, and competence around sort of the, the, the words we use when we, when we talk to patients and we talk to each other about illness, that we don't have uh, a set of, of words that, you know, are, are commonplace um, to have an open dialogue. It's just really, really, really a beautiful talk. Uh, I think those are sort of the the top two that that come to mind. But truly, I mean, there there are so many phenomenal talks. I think you could get lost for hours and hours watching. Okay, well, I'm sure a few people will go check out those talks, and I know I will. Well, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. And uh, once again, that website is endwellproject.org. I think I got that right. Yes. Yes. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Be sure to check out those awesome documentaries on Netflix. And we hope you've enjoyed the last four weeks straight of weekly Week Rogue episodes. We've actually gone through all the episodes we've already recorded. So we're going to be recording more soon, hopefully. If you've been enjoying what you've heard, please do leave us a review. And we'll see you next time.